Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. Yes, we have another episode this week on top of our bonus episode yesterday. It's just that kind of week. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm all alone in the studio again, but on the line with me is Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. Joanna, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Katie. <laughs> I mean, more like thank you for being here as in like everyone else is off doing something else. I mean, I would listen to you monologue about the Oscars, <laughs> so it's fine. It's terrifyingly easy to imagine that. So later this episode, I got on the phone with our executive editor of the West Coast, Krista Smith, to talk about the Hollywood Issue cover, which launched today and is very exciting. And then also Richard Skyped in for a minute to talk about Sundance so far. We'll talk to him more about that next week. But in the meantime, Joanna, I feel like there's some stories about the Oscar nominations that have emerged since we all talked Tuesday morning. So, yeah, what's everyone buzzing about? For me, it seems like everyone is still really upset about Amy Adams' snub, more so than most snubs. Yeah, I mean, the biggest snub for me, I think, in the... Best Actress category is Annette Benning, like personally, but I yeah. think you're right that the larger sort of outcries about Amy Adams. I think Arrival was just such a, like a popular film that more people got a chance to see her work. Well, and Arrival is also a Best Picture nominee, unlike 20th Century Women. So you kind of, you look at how right. the Oscars love the movie, but somehow don't love the star, which doesn't add up. Right, exactly. And, you know, there's a great discussion of whether or not more subtle performances are ever allowed you know, to get a nomination like this. Um, Dan Zach over at the Washington Post wrote a piece about the few very subtle performances. And I would say, I would call Amy Adams' performance in Arrival very understated and, and internal versus like Meryl goes big in Flores Foster Jenkins. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that question of big performances versus understatedness is acting the most often gets rewarded. Yeah. You know, Emma Stone gets to act with song and dance and that's big and it's showing natalie portman's doing an impression of a famous person <laughs> right exactly and if some of the smaller things i mean isabelle Huppert, i wouldn't call her performance sort of big and showy but she has such hardcore material to work with in that yeah. film that you know it is kind of big so just thinking about when the voters have to nominate if they even are able to remember some of the smaller performances that they've seen, even if they're quite beautiful. Yeah. Well, and the thing with Amy Adams that I I found when I was writing about this yesterday, she's a five-time nominee. This would have been her sixth. And uh, when Kate Winslet got her sixth nomination, I think everyone was saying, oh my God, we have got to give this woman an Oscar. Like, it is time. So I think maybe the comfort for Amy Adams is that at this point, the narrative behind her is so strong that the next thing she does, it's amazing, which it won't be long. Everything she does is amazing. Uh, She should have a really strong shot at a win. 
previous nomination for Amy Adams do you think she should have won for? I mean, I feel like her first nomination for Junebug was such a great, yeah. you know, and it's the a perfect kind of breakthrough thing that's like, oh, well, it's just a pleasure to be nominated. Like, we're recognizing you as a big breakout star. But she was so good in that that it's almost like since then the default for her has been to be great. So everyone expects right. it. And that, you know, that year Rachel Weiss won for The Constant Gardener, which is a great performance, but, you know, not the kind of thing that everyone was like, it must win. That all really could have gone either way. Yeah. What's funny is Michelle Williams was also nominated that year for Brokeback Mountain. She also has yet to win and maybe could have won for that too. Yeah. What a, what a tough year. Um, but I think that Constant Gardener is a film that has sort of been forgotten in the rear view and people bring up Junebug all the time when talking about Amy Adams. Oh, so. yeah. It is just such a lovely, well-observed performance. Yeah. But once again, a subtle one. Like, Amy Adams is not a showy actress. She's never going to have one of those scenes. I think Mike Hogan calls it, like, the snot coming out of your nose mm-hmm. crying scene, right? That, like, both Michelle Williams and Viola Davis have this year. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to be Amy Adams. She's going to give you something else. I love her work. Her work in The Master, I think, is some of my yeah. favorite stuff that she did. So... Yeah, here's hoping that she gets that narrative, that Leo slash uh-huh. or Kate Winslet momentum behind her and whatever beautiful, subtle performance she turns in next gets her yeah. what she deserves. So the other thing that we've been tracking is maybe the opposite kind of outcry is that uh, Constance Wu, the star of Fresh Off the Boat, who I think is a pretty uh, well-known, uh, she does not keep her opinions to herself, and God bless her for it, was kind of on a tweet storm about Casey Affleck, which is a, a topic we've talked about a couple times on the show. What's she bringing up, Joanna? Um, you know, just some of the stuff that we've talked about before, I guess I'll just read a little bit of what she wrote, where she said, he's running for an award that honors a craft whose purpose is examining dignity of the human experience and young women are deeply human. The absence of award doesn't diminish a great performance that's on page or screen, as it were, and the opportunity to even do the part is tremendous honor in and of itself. But the choice of awarding committee does increase the dignity of award and brings light to the pursuit of our craft. Sorry, she gets a little in the weeds here. But her point is, I mean, she's like, she wrote, she tweeted a lot about this. And, yeah. and I think the sheer volume, and yeah, you're right, the Constant Blue has spoken out before about whitewashing sort of primarily has been her main cause, but, you know, just really shining a light at it. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that this tweet storm is happening now. It's almost as if she would be surprised, I guess, Maybe Carlson Wu doesn't host the podcast, but Oscars and isn't obsessing every week about who's going to be nominated. I can't believe that. Whereas, I mean, the rest of us are like, yeah, of course Casey Apple's going to get nominated and he's probably going to win. Yeah. You know, we've already litigated this on the podcast, not to say it shouldn't be relitigated, but it's a really, really tough discussion. Yeah. I think we all agree that Casey Affleck is fantastic in that film. And we all agree that, you know, crowning him with an award might send a message to women that we don't necessarily want to back. So it's, it's, it's a a problem. I know. Well, it does make you wonder if the momentum from the Women's March could really open this conversation back up because it's such a conundrum that even people like us who recognize that his alleged crimes are pretty terrible. It's it's a hard thing to do when you know his performance is so great, but maybe the momentum is now behind talking about it. I will say that one of Constance's last tweets, I think is she says, I've been counseled not to talk about this for my career's sake, but F my career then. I'm a woman and a human first. That's what my craft is built on. Wow. Which is, like, you know, like, it's bold, man. And I am impressed by her for that. But, you know, algorithms are different everywhere, but Constance Wu is trending on my Facebook page and on my Twitter. And so I think despite the fact that this has been a topic of conversation that various entertainment sites have been covering the Casey Affleck sort of case allegations or whatever you want to call it, 
it's possible that Constance Wu sort of putting this extra spotlight on it could have it reached further than it has before. And then, you know, if people feel, I don't know what, shamed into not voting for Casey Affleck, and I don't really like love that as a motivator, but yeah. I think it's definitely just a conversation that we shouldn't, that shouldn't have been like a flare up and then go away. It's a conversation that should be ongoing. Yeah. So, Well, for what it's worth, my Facebook trending is Ryan Gosling. So maybe that means there's a big motivation behind him to win Best Actor and that's what's going on. <laughs> Although the, the popular article is see terrifying wax figure of Ryan Gosling. So I don't know oh, it's going to help anyone win an Oscar. <laughs> And now my conversation with executive West Coast editor Krista Smith about the new Vanity Fair Hollywood issue cover, which just launched this morning. Krista, this is so exciting. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. I love Little Gold Men. Well, we love having you on, and especially when you've got all this inside scoop on what I always think is the most exciting cover of the year, although I'm biased, obviously. I love the Hollywood cover. I've loved it since I was a teenager reading it. You have been part of every Hollywood issue cover. I think that, I mean, you've been with Vanity Fair as long as the Hollywood cover has, so you've kind of got all the inside story. So what's the story? with this year's what's the theme how did we choose all of these incredible women to be on the cover well you have to change it up every year obviously you, you can't imagine that you're going to do it <laughs> you're like did we just do this <laughs> seriously uh, yeah because you no start better... in, you start in like august right <laughs> yeah you really do i mean there's no better marker of time than the hollywood issue in the traditional like season yeah. uh for me it starts Definitely, it almost starts in can, really, when you start seeing the performances that are coming out and it trickles on into, you know, Telluride, Toronto, and whatnot. So there's two ways to go about this. Sometimes it's about, you know, who we're getting all the Oscars. Mm Mm-hmm. And last year, we really wanted to do a kind of uh, multi-generational cover. So in that, we ended up with some Oscar nominees, some not necessarily Oscar nominees, but really strong performances. Last year, we had all five Best Actress nominees, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, we did, awesome. didn't we? Yeah. And this year, we didn't want to do that specifically. It was more about, for me, there was so much talk about gender politics and women in Hollywood, and I just thought there's this great group of women that are working, that are all diverse that are the generation kind of coming up. Mm-hmm. And even though we have, you know, Amy Adams and Natalie Portman and Emma Stone, certainly maybe they've been around for a little bit longer, they're still very young and vibrant and working and prolific. And they're just setting such a good example, all of those actresses, for, you know, the roles they're picking, the life they're living. I just love, I love that combination. And Lupita is just the queen. I love, mm-hmm. I mean, she's the queen of Cotway. The queen of Cotway. <laughs> she has been in the Vanity Fair family. I did a Vanities opener on her right after I saw her in 12 Years a Slave. So I feel very attached to Lupita. She's been on the second panels in previous covers. This is the first time she's on the front panel. Yeah, yeah. she's been on two other Hollywood Issue covers, which is incredible for someone who broke out with 12 Years a Slave four years ago. You know, she's had this meteoric rise. But this time she's on the front panel, and it just felt like the right mix of people. And then I wanted on the second and the third panel, only the nerds will notice this, but none of those women have ever been on the cover before. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to really celebrate 
seven women that Vanity Fair has never done in the Hollywood issue. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are people who really obsess over who's on the cover each year. And the one that really surprises me the most, I mean, people like Ruth Nega, who just really broke out this year. It's not a surprise she hasn't been on. But Dakota and Elle Fanning being on the cover, the fact that neither of them have been in there before, they've been working literally their entire lives. That, to me, is maybe the most exciting one, just seeing the two of them photographed together among all these other incredible women. Um, And I think you're not alone in that. I mean, we have done the Fanning sisters together before inside the magazine for various spotlights or I think in the Bruce Weber Hollywood issue, we did a beautiful one of them Mm -hmm. together. But this is the first time that they're on the cover and they are collected in that group of seven. And I think part of it is is that Elle was 18 now and Dakota, I think, is 22. There's a certain level where their careers are different enough. They're separated enough. They're old enough. They're legal. You know, there's just, you know, I don't think that Elle really as a teenager wanted to do that. Obviously, Dakota the same. So it really is perfect timing for us. And I think it's beautiful. And both of them had really great movies this year. And once again, I really admire their careers and just their professionalism and the two of them as girls. And full disclosure, I've known them for a long time. Well, they've been working since they were actual babies. So they feel, I feel like I've grown up with them, you yeah. know, but they're great. They were great. I think they're just beautiful. So you, you are on the set for these shoots and you do interviews with all of them. And those videos are all on VanityFair.com. So what's the vibe like when you gather together all of these people? I mean, are they like reuniting long lost friends? Do you have Janelle Monet introducing herself to Greta Gerwig? That just seems like so much potential for fascinating stories. Well, I will tell you that it varies year to year. I mean, I think that when you walk on a Hollywood cover and it's Annie Leibowitz and you're, there's a big soundstage filled with the most beautiful clothes you've ever seen. And, you know, there's a certain kind of anticipation and pleasant anxiety, I guess, (laughs) the the right word. A lot of these times, you know, these women, they've been photographed before, certainly, but this is a very big deal. It's very specific. So it's like a palatable energy Mm -hmm. and it's overwhelmingly positive. And I think in this world that we're in now, especially with the, I've noticed the change with social media, people know a little bit more about themselves. They're aware of each other. There was a real excitement. And I do know that Natalie Portman and Amy Adams, they hit it off. They're like, oh my God, you have a kid, you're pregnant and this and that. Did they not know uh, each other? You would think they would have crossed paths so many times. You know, I'm sure that they probably had crossed paths before, but it's not like there's, you know, an actor commissary that everybody goes to. <laughs> not like in the you MGM know, everyone days. Lives in different neighborhoods, there's work in different cities and nothing shoots in LA anymore. You know that, yeah, Katie. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> whether it's television or film, you know, it's very, very rare. I mean, that's why La La Land is amazing that they actually did a movie that yeah. was all in LA. But it's a great energy and people are really excited to meet each other and there's a mutual admiration and it's curated as such that everyone's so different. Yeah. You know, people are in different mediums, doing different things, different movies, and I loved it. It was great. And I have to say, I could listen to Janelle Monet talk forever. Her, her voice, voice is incredible. She needs her own podcast. She's, uh, <laughs> just the, the lilt of her voice is just so beautiful. She was so well-spoken. It was great to see someone like Janelle, who is so established in one medium. Mm-hmm you know, performs to crowds and all this stuff. It was great to see her in this medium, which was completely different for her. And she had to kind of adjust to, you know, a still photograph and the, the wardrobes. And, and it was really, it was amazing to work with her. I, I love that. It was a huge standout. Also, Greta, to have Greta here, she just finished directing her movie. Mm-hmm. She's literally flown in and driven right to the set. So, There's always that kind of great energy. Same with Elle Fanning, same with Dakota Johnson. 
a great vibe, and then it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, you got to get the hair, the makeup, the clothes, the wardrobe. We did two different settings. And for this cover, we really wanted to have that, you know, inspired from the La La Land. We wanted to have that backdoor Hollywood, mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of old days when you used to have the star system and everything was shot on a lot and you'd walk past each other, you know, on your way to your different jobs. And so we wanted to create that, which is why we shot it as if it's, between, which it literally was, between two sound stages. Yeah, where where was the photo shoot? We were at Paramount. They have a rival in the Oscar race, so they're, you know, a, a fixture of the Oscar season. Paramount like, is crazy. Paramount yeah. has fences. They have a rival. Florence Foster and Jenkins. Have and Florence Foster Jenkins. And Florence Foster Jenkins, right? <laughs> I didn't even think about it. We didn't, you know, at that point, you're not even really necessarily thinking. I think a lot of those movies came on late in the game. I mean, I always knew Fences was going to be a contender. Denzel... Washington is one of my favorites, and you know anything he yeah. does is going to get recognition. But it's kind of exciting, actually, in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like I was saying, you've been part of all of the Hollywood issue covers from the very beginning, and I think honestly, my favorites were some of the ones even back in the day. You would be like picking the stars of tomorrow, and you go back and you look, and yes, like, oh, the, you know the up and comers. Right, the theme has changed all the time, and and it. It is like, who are the young ones? Who's the ones to watch? Yeah. And then the older, more established. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I'm looking at like 1999, where you've got the front folds, Adrian Brody, Charlize Theron, Tandy Newton, and Reese Witherspoon. And all of them are legitimate stars. I mean, this is several years before Adrian Brody won his Oscar, but that's such a gamble. I mean, you also do the Vanities covers. What's your secret sauce for figuring out who's going to be the big I mean, could I bottle it, Katie, and retire (laughs) and buy an island? Seriously. (laughs) It's just like moon dust you sprinkle over people. I always wonder, like, wait, I have this. This skill, but why couldn't I create dry bar? Why didn't I make a soul cycle? Why didn't I invent the juicy sweatsuit? <laughs> you do you still have time, plenty of time. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think it's just, you know, I am a, a, a true at heart. I love film. I love artists. I love telling stories. It really is just who I am. So I pay really, really close attention to it. And I also think certain you know, individuals exhibit character. You know, it takes a lot to persevere in Hollywood through the decades. Yeah. You have to manage your crazy, manage your fragility. And that goes for men and women. You know, it's a very, very, very tough business. And it takes a certain amount of skill that is either learned or you just have to have the tenacity to withstand it. And so I think a lot of times it's not surprising that someone like Reese Witherspoon and, you know, these, these people have what it takes and it's so hard. You know, <laughs> I don't think we give them enough credit when we're looking at our actors about what it takes still to be Harrison Ford, mm-hmm. you know, who I know we did on uh, one, the cover with all the guys and yep. still be relevant in 72 and for Reese Witherspoon still to be in it and Charlie still to be in it. And, you know, Sandy Bullock. I mean, Sandy Bullock was the last girl on the first cover. I know, I love And I remember that because that was my pick from Speed. And I had that last panel. And I did Julianne Moore, Angela Bassett, and Sandy Bullock. And I threw in Gwyneth Paltrow because I'd seen her in this movie, Flesh and Bone. (laughs) And you look at those girls, it's just kind of amazing that Sandy Bullock still is one of the biggest box office stars. It is is fun to go back and 
and look at that stuff. Yeah, there's a gallery on VF.com that I'll link to somewhere where you can go back and look at all of the previous covers and you go back and you look and there's one where Emma Stone is on the last panel. She's kind of in the grass with all of these other women and then you see her kind of migrate to the front panel. Yeah, she's there with Evan Rachel Wood mm-hmm. and look how great she's doing on Westward and Anna Kendrick. And Anna Kendrick, yeah. Like they were kind of the like up-and-comers then and now they're the megastars. Or you go to 2012 and Felicity Jones is on the last panel and then she, I think two years ago, she was in the middle panel. I mean, that really you really can watch the evolution of someone's career by looking back at all these covers. Right, and I was just in Sundance, and on that panel you're talking about there's Andrew Garfield and then Garrett Hedlund, and Garrett Hedlund is huge in this movie, Mudbound. Oh, yeah. People are already talking about him getting a Best Supporting Oscar nom, and he was on that cover, too. Andrew Garfield was right in the center of that. That's the one where we had Anne Hathaway and James mm-hmm. Franco. And with Robert Duvall as the bartender. Right. <laughs> My favorite, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, so I was going to ask, do you have a favorite? Is that one your number one favorite? Um, I, you know, I, it's really hard to say, do I have a favorite? I mean, I do kind of love when you're able to, you know, sneak something like Robert Duvall in as, mm-hmm. a, as a bartender. That's kind of fun. And then there's Lion Cubs. Uh, <laughs> and Rashida Jones is giving the Lion Cub a bottle. <laughs> right. I mean, there is a certain kind of, you know, uh, just madness that's delicious in that particular cover. I mean, I don't know that I have a favorite one. I mean, I do love the one that we were able to do, the one with all the big actresses, with Jane Fonda and oh, Viola last, Davis. Last year, I, I yeah. I love that one. The one going back to when it was a raining man, just the energy of having Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt all on the cover, and Jack Nicholson, and they all drove themselves a lot. <laughs> and just watching that energy and seeing what cars they drove, and a lot of them brought their own clothes. Yeah. And just seeing those interactions, those are always so great. And then the young stars are all great. I mean, the ones when we shot in the Chrysler building that was like basically being restored, and you could literally look over and see Manhattan below. <laughs> There's been a lot of great ones. It's really hard to pick. Well, so at VF.com, we're going to have, we have the cover, obviously, and then all these behind-the-scenes videos and the interviews that you did. I think my favorite of the behind-the-scenes things that we see, there's a video of Emma Stone jumping on a pogo stick, which she's really good at. So, like she says, she hasn't done it since she was 11, but I'm not sure I believe her. Anything you witness behind the scenes that uh, either you can see in video or you want people to know about? Well, the great stuff about that is they kind of hate me because I go in and I'm like, okay, guys, what are we going to do? Let's, uh, and I try to get something that lets the fans and the audience get a glimpse of who they are without it just being, you know, a standard kind of interview. It's like I like to call it the, the, the cracks between time cracks, little moments <laughs> in between the moments. And it's kind of funny because Tamma had said, I don't know, I can't do anything. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then she's like, well, I used to be able to pogo stick, and we were able to get a pogo stick for her, <laughs> uh, which I loved. And then, you know, with Ruth Nega, I learned that she was a bartender forever. Yeah. You know, and she, you would never think that she's this thick Irish brogue. Yeah, yeah, because she's, you know, yeah, become she famous does. as an American. And then Greta Gerwig is a fencer. She's <laughs> fencing forever. So you, you get a glimpse into their lives. And wait till you see the Dakota Fanning one. That is unbelievable. Even the Dakota Johnson one is pretty yeah, great. The Dakota too. Johnson one where her dad, Don Johnson, is behind the scenes watching <laughs> yeah. it happen. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think that made everybody really happy, by the way. He's just still, he's still got that swagger. Yeah. Uh, but it shows a little bit about who these women are outside of. Just gets, lets them have a little fun, too. Yeah. Well, Krista, this is definitely not the last time we'll talk to you. Oscar season is afoot. There's so much going on. But in the meantime, please go revel in the success of this Hollywood cover. And thanks so much oh, for thanks, coming on. Katie. I'm so glad. I'm glad you're a fan. Oh, yeah. This is my favorite day of the year. So, yeah, <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, Krista. <laughs> Bye-bye. And now we're going to hop on the line with Richard Lawson from Sundance to catch up on some of the best stuff that he's seen out there so far. 
So Richard, you're Skyping in to join me from still snowy Park City, but I hear uh, the Hoth-like conditions have receded for the moment. Uh, right now, yeah. You know, it's, uh, I woke up this morning and it wasn't snowing, so that was good. Hey. But I'm sure we'll get some kind of flurry at some point throughout the day. <laughs> I mean, it's been crazy. This is my third time here. And my first year, it was 50 and sunny. Last year, it was not too bad. This year, it's just been unrelenting. <laughs> it's so hard getting around, but, you know, we're making do. Well, I feel like now you know what you can survive at Sundance. So next time, it'll be like, I don't care what you bring me. And he wants just like fireballs from the sky, which, you know, who knows what's possible in the future. <laughs> well, you know, not only survive the snow, but also a particular inauguration. So yeah, a big one. There we go. You've been lucky enough to distract yourself from all this with movies. And uh, we'll talk about kind of yeah. the Sundance wrap up next week. But uh, there are a couple of big things that everyone's talking about that I wanted to kind of get your, you know, hotter take on before you return to sea level. And I think the biggest thing that I was excited to hear about, and I know you were too, you talked about last week was Call Me By Your Name, the adaptation by Luca Guadagnino. And uh, it's great. So it, it totally worked from what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was putting a lot of expectation on it just because, well, you know, I like the book and I was just, you know, I like the director. So I was excited on that front. But also, once I got on the ground here, as can often happen at a festival, I just had a couple bad days in a row where I just didn't connect with anything and was starting to get a little nervous about not finding my film at this festival. Mm -hmm. And then I saw Call Me By Your Name on Sunday night and it delivered and then some. It's really beautiful. It's really faithful to the book while also creating its own sort of vernacular. And the performances are great. It's just, I mean, it's just a 100% like full body immersion experience. It's great. And it's the kind of thing that will work even uh, if you're not locked in a snowbank and watching the summary movie. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, you know, it's going to play Berlin. They just announced. Um, oh, that's I, I interesting. Yeah. And I talked to a producer on the film and the publicist at a party for it on Sunday night. And they, you know, they seemed pretty bullish on getting it into Cannes, kind of like Captain Fantastic did. So I think it's going to play a lot of festivals, a lot of different seasons, probably come out late summer, early fall, which is, I think, a good time for it. You know, but I think no matter what time of year it is, the movie just has such a... I hate kind of using this word, but sort of sensual pull to it that <laughs> it's it's kind of irresistible, frankly. If, if it forces you to use the term sensual, I guess that's really... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's really saying is. something. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that came into the festival already picked up by Sony Pictures Classics, but there's been a couple of other things that have uh, they paid a bunch of money for, which I think we weren't necessarily predicting because last year Fox Searchlight paid a ton of money for The Birth of a Nation. It didn't pan out for them at all. You haven't seen The Big Sick, which is, I think, the biggest deal so far of the festival, right? Yeah, Jordan Hoffman reviewed that for us on bf.com you know one of the many strong reviews for that movie you know the, at a festival you, you're seeing movies all day you need to eat at some point i took <laughs> a gamble i said i'm gonna go get some food and of course i missed one of the big hits of the festival so yeah but yeah that sold for a bunch of money to amazon right yeah yeah it paid 12 million dollars for it i believe yeah. uh, and then netflix has picked up to the bone which is an anorexia movie with lily collins in it did you catch that one i did and i loved it okay um, yeah so how it yeah. sounds like a real bummer you know it is in parts but it feels very honest and it's about, you know, two steps forward, one step back progress. So, so there is a sense of hope to it. And, you know, Marty Knoxon, who is, you know, veteran uh, TV writer and creator, mm -hmm. um, this is her first film that she's directed. She's written two other films. So it's this really personal effort. It's really assured. You know, she's been in the business a long time. She knows what she's doing. Lily Collins is great. I didn't know that she could kind of act the way that she is. She does in this movie. So yeah, I mean, it didn't get a ton of buzz when it premiered here because it played against a ghost story, the David Lowry oh, movie. Yes, with your Casey review of Catholic. that just went up as we were talking about that. 
Yeah, I caught a later screening of it on Tuesday. You know, so all of the kind of critic types, your David Ehrlichs and of the world, they were all <laughs> at a ghost story. And and I think some people had seen To the Bone pre-Sundance. But yeah, so it didn't quite get the kind of Twitter critical attention that maybe it would have if it didn't have that strong competition on the schedule. But I think it's really good. And, you know, I think $8 million from Netflix, like, sure, you know, I think it'll play well in Netflix. It's a movie that is about well, for everyone, really, but, you know, it's centered on a young woman and eating disorders are certainly disproportionately, you know, experienced by young women or women in general. So I think that Netflix being the sort of medium of choice for younger people, mm. I think a lot of people will find that movie. It'll do really well um, in the same way that I think Edge of 17, once it ends up on streaming platforms, will be a big kind of cult hit. That's true. I'm still waiting to see Edge of 17. And when it goes, if it goes on Netflix, I'd be delighted. Uh, tell me about Ghost Story, though. I know your review went up and people are raving about it. I haven't read it yet. And it's, so it's Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck reuniting with the director of Ain't Them Body Saints. Yep, that's right. Um, so this is just a little threesome working together again. And the director um, of Pete's Dragon, we should know, a movie you love. I love Pete's Dragon, yeah. But And this movie, you know... It, is so different from that. And yet sort of at the center, I kind of argue in the review there, there's a sort of emotional heart that the movies share. Yeah. It's this kind of experimental film shot in kind of a square aspect ratio, not really any narrative except the fact that Casey Affleck is a ghost in this house where he and his girlfriend or wife played by Rooney Mara lived. There's very, very little dialogue. It's mostly visual and music and it captures a sort of, philosophical rumination on time and existence and love, I guess, to an extent, and mortality. It's really odd and it's hard to describe. I mean, even writing the review, I had a hard time. I, don't, I didn't want to spoil certain things, but I also wasn't sure how to articulate it. But it's really special and different. And, you know, it, it's with A24, so it will get mm, distributed. They and sound like a good people distributor for it. that. Yeah, I think so, too. And I don't know. I don't think that it probably is anywhere in the Oscar conversation, whereas Call Me By Your Name, I think, definitely could be up for various things. But A Ghost Story is just unique and really cool and moving, but while also being a little depressing. So that's kind of been the tenor of this festival, actually, is a lot of... And maybe it's all just infected by you know, events in, in Washington, but there's a lot of sort of despair kind of mixed with a little bit of comfort or at least a catharsis at acknowledging that that despair is sort of universal. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, as we talk about the Oscar race, I think we're all talking about La La Land as this escapism and something people are really eager to embrace. But, it, you know, Sundance is where we can see kind of a more immediate response. A lot of these movies could have been made last summer as Trump was kind of surging in the polls. Do you feel like you're kind of seeing the early bits of how Hollywood responds to this political era we're in? I mean, uh, we might be. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on when things were made. But I think, yeah, th this national mood has been like this, not quite so stark as it is now but for a couple of years so yeah. i think you know you're right that a lot of these movies were sort of forged in the kind of fires of trumpism and whatever and and yeah i think we're seeing that you know another film that i wrote about the review went up on tuesday was, was beatriz at dinner which is the new movie from writer mike white and director miguel arteta starring salma hayek which is about a woman who goes to see a private client she's a masseuse and kind of a eastern medicine healer she goes to see a private client a rich lady in orange county and gets kind of stuck at the house and ends up having dinner ends up being a guest at this dinner party. And one of the guests is this kind of Trumpian real estate billionaire played by John Lithgow. Mm -hmm. uh, and they kind of square off against each other in this philosophical way. And it's a sad movie. It's a really beautiful movie. Salma Hayek's great in it. But it has this incredible timeliness. And I think something I said in my review was that it feels like it was made yesterday. Mm. So whether that was accident or whether Mike White is just, you know, a prescient kind of, you know, prophet, <laughs> I don't know. But but yeah, so there's just been a lot of movies that here that uh, carry that weight with them. And um, it's made for sometimes tough viewing and tough going. But also, you know, again, it's been a little bit cathartic to 
work through some of these feelings, you know, through art, I guess. Yeah. Are you worried about what happens when you return to New York and you don't have oh, a terrified. five I, movie? Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to come back and face the real world. Just bury yourself in a snowbank and no one will find you till spring. And uh, yeah. you know, who knows what might have happened by then. Things might have gotten better. You never know. Fine plan. Or maybe I'll just get on a plane to Berlin and just wait for that festival to start. And I'll just keep popping <laughs> around. Yeah, when you escape America for safety in Berlin, uh, it's a really interesting <laughs> twist on the historical narrative. Um, well, Richard, when you're back in New York next week, we will talk to you and Mike about kind of a Sundance summary. But good luck out there between now and then. Um, don't get stuck in a snowbank, please. We need you back here. All right. Thanks. I can't wait to talk to you guys about it in full. And uh, I'll see you then. And now we're going to go big before we go home. I'm back on the line with Joanna. And uh, we're going to talk about one of the many categories in which La La Land is nominated. But uh, I don't know if it's a favorite to win the way that it is a lot of other places. The original screenplay category is always a really fun one. That's where you get some of the best out there nominations. Like this year, The Lobster made it in there. It's also the only nomination for 20th Century Women, which I find somewhat heartbreaking. But that's another conversation. But I think both of us would agree that it's between Manchester by the Sea and La La Land here. Joanna, who do you think is going to win? Yeah, unless Hell or High Water gets like a weird surprise uh, swell Which, from the knows? West for like Jeff Bridges' 10 lines that he utters in that movie. Um, I, you know, I feel like this would go to Manchester because Kenny Lonergan has gotten nominated before for screenplay. Yes. I think people think of him as, you know, he's a writer, writer slash director. People think of him as a screenwriter. And so I could see the film getting rewarded for this as a compensation for getting shut out of all other things because of Lala Land momentum. What do you think? I mean, so I'm looking at the history of the category, which I think is often a chance to kind of reward the oddball. Like in 2013, her won over, you know, American Hustle and Dallas Buyers Club and kind of more populist movies. I mean, the last two years in a row, it's gone to the Best Picture winner. So when there's a Best Picture winner in the category, it often wins. But I think maybe a good example for this is uh, 2011 when Midnight in Paris beat The Artist. Yeah. The Artist wanted to win Best Picture. But first of all, it was a silent movie. So the screenplay was like, I know, mm. I know. The fact that The Artist was nominated at all. I know. But yeah, I mean, I think something with a good story behind it and a writer as kind of well-regarded as Kenneth Lonergan. I don't know. If you love Manchester by the Sea, and I think a lot of people do, you have to acknowledge that the writing is fantastic. So... I think if early in the night La La Land wins this, we're going to be like, oh boy, it is winning every single thing. But uh, in the meantime, yeah. I think I'm going to hang on to the idea that Manchester could win. There was that like really eccentric couple of years where Little Miss Sunshine and Juno won back to back. Yeah. Um, yeah, those were good you years. You know, where they were like, we're going to reward the, you know, the highly verbal chatty movies. Well, and then right after that, it was Milk, uh, Diablo Cody and Dustin Lance Black were kind of these two breakout stars in the screenplay category, which is uh, yeah. not often a thing that happens. Yeah, those those were some really good nomination years. Lars and the Real Girl got a screenplay nomination. Wally did. Yes. There's In Bruges. There's some really fun stuff. I always like to sort of relitigate our expectations in the lens <laughs> of that article Rebecca wrote about the new Academy class mm-hmm. and, and how we can expect them to change things up. Like, are they going to go eccentric and vote for the lobster Maybe. or reward Mike Mills because he's not going to get anything else that night? You know, I don't know. So the question, the answer to your question, original <laughs> question is, I don't know, but probably. Miss well, I mean, given that La La Land is such a jargon on at this point, I think it's kind of fun to have something we don't know about. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And rate and review us on iTunes. This is a great time for people to start listening because everyone has seen the Oscar nominations and they're invested as much as we have been for months and months and months. You can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna. At Joe Ropis. And uh, Mike and Richard, you know where to find them. We'll let them speak for themselves next week. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. 
And this week's award for the best case scenario of how we'll look back on the Trump years goes to Joanna Robinson. There was that like really eccentric couple of years. 